quietly slip out to go to junior church and their parents can pick them up uh, upstairs at the end of the service. So that's page 836 if you're using the pew Bible in the seat back in front of you. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 11, we'll be looking at. Now all children, especially in summertime, this time of year, get splinters in their feet. And we have one child in particular who hates to get them taken out. This child squirms, this child fusses, this child flails when we get out that tweezer or that sterilized needle. And we try to reason with the child saying, we can't leave it in there. It might get infected, and in fact, your foot will feel better as soon as the splinter's out. What we're really saying is, you need to look longer term. Put the pain you feel now into perspective. At the moment, you might hate the pain, but when you look at the bigger picture, you'll see that it's better to endure a little pain now than to face a worse situation in the future. And that's often true with medical matters, isn't it? And it's also often true with life matters. Short-term pain for long-term gain, right? Many of us are enduring pain now. The pain of health concerns, the pain of relationship troubles, the pain of depression or loneliness, the pain of catching flack for being faithful to Jesus in an antagonistic world. And today's passage is one where Paul encourages us to hang in there and to look at the bigger picture, just like we tell our child to do when we're trying to get that splinter out. Today will be our last Sunday in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Next week we begin 2 Thessalonians. Remember, Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians to a group of new Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica. Paul had had the privilege of of sharing Jesus with them. But Paul had had to leave that city in a hurry because a riot broke out there. And so he didn't have time to teach the Thessalonians everything that he'd wanted to about Jesus and how to follow Jesus. Paul longed to return to these believers, but he couldn't. So eventually he sent his younger helper Timothy to them. And Timothy brought back a report to Paul about how things were going there. And Paul wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians in response to that report. In the opening three chapters of the letter, we saw that Paul pours out his heart about his love for the Thessalonians and his joy that they were standing firm in their newfound faith, even though they were undergoing uh, intense persecution for their faith. And then starting in chapter 4, Paul addressed some of the items of concern that Timothy had brought back. Um, As you saw when Greg was here last Sunday, Paul addressed matters of sexuality and matters of loving one another and of working hard so as not to be a burden to your brothers and sisters. And now in verse 13 of chapter 4, as we pick up the letter today, Paul moves on to another topic. And that has to do with informing the Thessalonians about the future. And specifically about the return of Jesus Christ. Evidently, when Paul was with the Thessalonians, he'd said some things about this topic. The Thessalonians knew that Jesus was coming back. That he was coming back to save God's people. And he was coming back to punish God's enemies. But Paul hadn't filled in all the details. And so the Thessalonians were fuzzy about some things. And the first thing they were fuzzy on was what happened to those who died before Jesus 
came back. The Thessalonians evidently assumed, like most early Christians seem to, that Jesus might return really soon. And they were waiting eagerly for that return. But what if one of Christ's followers died before that return? What would happen? This matter was actually now a very real concern to them because evidently there had been one or more funerals recently in Thessalonica since Paul had left. And remember... At those funerals, the Thessalonians didn't have the New Testament to turn to for encouragement and and hope. All they knew was what Paul had told them, and he hadn't told them what happened if you died before Christ came back. And so they just didn't know. And they were distraught over the fate of their loved ones. And so now in his letter, starting in verse 13, Paul fills them in to allay their fears. Brothers and sisters, he begins... We do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, you might remember that I pointed out two weeks ago that Paul does not comfort the Thessalonians by assuring them that their loved ones are in heaven and that they will be reunited with them in heaven when they die. Were some of you surprised or disturbed by that? Well, I promised that today we'd tackle the topic head on, or rather Paul tackles the topic head on, and we're going to see how he does it. What does Paul say to encourage the Thessalonians and to give them hope about their deceased loved ones? What would you say if you were at one of those funerals of a Thessalonian believer who had died? Those of you who are on the mission trip have learned to be spontaneous and get up there and take a risk. So maybe you got to do the impromptu message to encourage the people. What would you say? How would you comfort the loved ones of the deceased? Would you say, don't worry, they're in heaven with Jesus? And one day you'll see them again when you die and you go to heaven too? Well, that's not what Paul says. And the reason is that going to heaven when we die is not the primary hope that Paul or any other New Testament writer looks forward to. Let me say that again. Going to heaven when we die is not the primary hope that Paul or any other New Testament writer looks forward to. Now, listen carefully. Notice that I did not say that we do not go to heaven when we die. I did not say that. What I said is that that is not the primary hope to which the New Testament looks forward to. As wonderful as it will be to be with Jesus when we die and whatever that will be like, there's something even better, which is what the New Testament points our hope toward. The New Testament hope is that when Jesus returns, we will be raised from the dead and we will live with Jesus forever. New Testament scholar and writer N.T. Wright is on a mission to help the church rediscover this fact. He writes, salvation then is not going to heaven, but being raised to life in God's new heaven and new earth. We are not saved, or sorry, we are saved not as souls, but as wholes. And later we'll see what he means by that. You see, Wright recognizes that there's a lot of confusion in uh, churches these days about what happens when we die. And it comes from the fact that 
On this topic, the church over the years has been as much influenced by pagan Greek philosophy as we have by the New Testament. It all goes back to the Greek philosopher Plato. And get ready for a real quick and simple philosophy lesson here. So we'll just, just take a minute. Plato believed that the theoretical, intangible world, which we know with our minds, is superior to the physical, tangible world, which we can touch with our hands. Plato might take the example of a triangle and say, draw me your very best triangle. And then as you got out your straight edge and your sharp, sharp pencil and you tried, he would say, try all you want, but no matter how many times you try, none of your triangles will be exactly perfect. The only perfect triangle, Plato would say, exists in theory, out there in space, you might say. You can grasp it with your mind, but you can't touch it with your hands. And Plato would conclude, see, the theoretical, intangible, even spiritual world is better than the physical world. It's more perfect. And Plato's perspective became deeply ingrained in Western philosophy and in Western theology, too. After all, God is out there in space, like that triangle. God is perfect. God is perfect love. He's perfect justice. All of his attributes are perfect. And on this earth, we have only faulty imitations of that perfection. So the heavenly spiritual world must be the perfect world, theologians reasoned, and this earthly tangible world must be inferior. After all, isn't this tangible world corrupt and dirty and broken and evil and filled with pain and trouble? Okay, so take it a step further now. If the physical world is bad, and if the spiritual world beyond is good, then salvation must involve taking or God taking our soul, which is our spiritual immaterial part, and rescuing it from this tangible, broken, earthly world, this earthly existence on this, this broken planet in a, in a frail body which, where we struggle with evil desires. Salvation must be when we die that our souls... God enables us to escape the physical world and, and then we can join God in perfection in heaven. Now this view has so affected Western thought and Christianity and it sounds so right to us that we often overlook the fact that the Bible completely disagrees. And the point at which the Bible crushes this whole worldview is Easter. It's the fact that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead bodily, physically. Jesus' body, his imperfect decaying body, was raised by God from the dead. Jesus didn't die and get set free from his body and appear like a ghost to his followers and then just float like a soul up to heaven. No, he was bodily resurrected. He ate after his resurrection, he had scars. You could touch him. And so N.T. Wright again, the resurrection in the full Jewish and early Christian sense is the ultimate affirmation that creation matters. That embodied human beings matter. Bodies are good. 
the whole physical world. This creation is good. It's corrupted by sin, but it's good. And our hope is that though our bodies decay and die, we will be raised up. We will be renewed again to live with God in a renewed creation forever. Salvation means that God is going to redeem and renew this physical creation. As N.T. Wright put it, we are saved not as souls, but as wholes. Body and soul in a new heavens and a new earth. This has a lot of ramifications, which I don't have time to go into this morning. Notice how Paul takes this view and he bases it on Easter as he he begins his argument here with the Thessalonians in verse 14. He begins, we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Jesus' death and resurrection were the center of Paul's theology. They're the center of the gospel. And as we saw back in Colossians 2, back in May, last time Greg was here, and I don't expect you to remember everything he said, but if you read Colossians 2, if you read Romans 6, you see that Paul places a big emphasis on the fact that we who follow Christ are in Christ. We are in Christ who rose and or who died and rose again. So because we're in Christ, what's true of Christ is true of us. Did Christ die? Then we too must die, someday physically, unless Christ returns in the meantime. But in the meantime, we must die to our sinful nature. We die with Christ. Did Christ also rise bodily from the grave? Well, then we too will rise bodily from the grave. Now, Paul begins to spell this out for the Thessalonians as he continues in verse 14. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. All right, let's unpack what Paul's getting at here. First, notice how Paul refers to those who have died. He calls them those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Death is not their final end. Nor is death primarily a liberation of their pure soul from their evil bodies. No, death is like a a sleep in that their bodies are temporarily out cold, as we say. But our bodies will, as it were, wake up again at the resurrection when Christ returns. And when they do, Paul says, God will bring with Jesus those who are in him. So... Paul does believe that those who are dead are in some sense with Jesus now, for sure. But Paul doesn't have anything to say about what that's like here. Nor does he explain how we can at the same time be coming down with Christ from heaven when he returns and also rising up from the grave to meet Christ in the air. That's a kind of a confusing picture. But it doesn't seem to bother those details, those mechanics don't seem to bother Paul very much. He doesn't sort them all out for us because all of those details are a distraction from the main point that he's driving at. And in verse 15, he hones in on it. He says, according to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Paul's saying, don't worry about your dead loved ones. They're not going to miss out on a thing when Christ returns. They're not going to miss out on a thing. 
Why? Because your loved ones are already with Christ in heaven? Well, that may be true, but notice it's not Paul's emphasis. His emphasis, rather, he gets to in the next verse, verse 16. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first, First, before the living ascend to be reunited with Jesus at his coming, the dead will rise first. They're not going to miss out. They're going to rise first. That's Paul's focus. That's our hope. When Christ returns, those who are dead in Christ will rise bodily from the grave. And we know from other passages that that resurrection body will be a, a transformed, glorified body. Still fully human and physical, but in some sense transformed and spiritual as well. After that, verse 17, Paul says, We who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15, those who who are alive in a moment in the twinkling of an eye will also be transformed. And so together we will meet our Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Our hope, whether we live until Christ returns or whether we die before he returns, is that when he returns with his angelic troops, with trumpets and and with a victory shout, our hope is that the dead will be raised. And together with the living, we will all go together to meet the victorious conquering Lord as he ascends. And so we were talking this morning, thinking about about Joyce and about Pete and about Henry and others. And on that day, they are raised and some of us may be with them and those of us who are alive together and we're transformed and together we go joyously to meet the Lord, to welcome him at his return. And so Paul concludes, we will all be with the Lord together forever. Does anyone want to say hallelujah? Hallelujah. (laughs) So yes, they're with Jesus now, whatever that means. And that's wonderful. But there's an even better hope, which the New Testament points us to. And that's the resurrection. Now notice here that Paul doesn't say any more about Christ's return. He doesn't answer so many other questions we'd like to ask him, like, what will our new resurrected bodies be like? He gives us a little hint in 1 Corinthians 15, but still leaves us with many questions. Uh, We might also want to know over which country's airspace will we meet the Lord in the air? (laughs) And what will happen next after we meet the Lord? Will we be whisked off to heaven for a time like those who believe in the rapture think? Or will we, be, will we joyously welcome Christ back to earth as ancient peoples welcomed a king when the king came to their city, as the Thessalonians would have welcomed Caesar when he came to visit their city, as the people of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus into their city on that Palm Sunday when he came as their king? So after we ascend and we meet Christ in the air, do we keep heading up or do we come back down? Well, 
Paul just doesn't say here, does he? And we have our interpretations based on other scriptures, but let's not put words in Paul's mouth here, which he isn't actually saying in this verse. Rather, let's hear Paul's point here in 1 Thessalonians. His point is that we will be with the Lord together forever. The story is told about a very sick man who was in his doctor's examination room. The doctor worked out of his house. And the doctor had given him some very bad news. And uh, as the doctor was about to leave the exam room, the, the patient blurted out and he said, I'm afraid to die. Tell me what lies on the other side. And very quietly, the doctor said, I don't know exactly. And the man protested, you don't know. You're a Christian man. You don't know what's on the other side. The doctor was holding the handle of the door. And and on the other side of the door, there was a scratching and a whining sound. And the doctor thought for a moment. And then he opened the door. And his dog sprang into the room and leaped up on him. And turning to the patient, the doctor said, did you notice my dog? He's never been in this room before. He's not allowed. He didn't know what was inside. He knew nothing except that his master was here. And when the door opened, he sprang in without fear. And so then the doctor said to the patient, I know little of what's on the other side of death, but I do know one thing. I know my master is there, and that is enough. We will all be together with the Lord forever. That's what Paul wants to leave the Thessalonians with. That's his message at the end of chapter 4. And that's good news for us. Well, can you take some more? Paul goes on in chapter 5 to address a second confusion that the Thessalonians evidently had about Christ's second coming. And what exactly the second confusion is is not totally as clear as the last one was, but it seems to have to do with when Jesus is coming back. Maybe with concerns about whether they'd be ready when he came, or maybe just with concerns about what's taking him so long. Remember, the Thessalonians are being persecuted, and nobody longs for Jesus' return like those who are being persecuted. Well, Paul reminds them that he's already addressed the how long question with them evidently when he was with them in Thessalonica. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. In other words, there's no answer to the how long question. It's a secret. Nobody knows when Christ will return. And when he comes, he'll come suddenly and without warning. So remember that the next time some TV or radio preacher or some author makes another prediction about the date of Christ's return. Don't get sucked in. The New Testament makes it very clear that no one knows the day any more than you can know what hour a burglar might try to sneak into your house. Paul drives this home, verse 2. He says, while people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. This may allude to the Roman emperors, historians tell us, because the emperor's mantra was peace and safety, evidently. 
Rome had brought the Pax Romana to the world, the uh, peace of Rome. And the emperor's propaganda machine over all the lands that they had conquered liked to repeat, don't worry, as long as Rome rules, you will enjoy peace and safety. You can trust Rome and you can give the emperor your full allegiance. He promises you peace and safety. But Paul says, no way. Destruction will come on such people suddenly. And you know, this verse right here could have gotten Paul in big trouble with Rome. It's seditious. It's revolutionary. It's undermining people's trust in and allegiance to Kaiser Corias, Caesar is Lord. Saying that there's another king, Yesu Corias, Jesus is Lord. And Jesus might come suddenly and overthrow Rome. How about you? Who has your allegiance? Who has my allegiance? We celebrate our country on this 4th of July, and and rightfully so. We're so blessed to live here, to enjoy freedom, prosperity, many other blessings. So how are you living amidst all this blessing? What's it doing to your heart, to your soul, to your allegiances? Have you so bought into the American dream that, that you've spent your life carving out a life of peace and safety for you and for your children? And you've just given Jesus your Sunday mornings, a few volunteer hours on the side. Or does your track record of life choices reflect that Jesus, Yesu Korias, has your undying trust and allegiance? And that when Jesus' ways conflict with the American way of life, you've stood with Jesus come what may. Oh, you love your country, but Jesus has your primary allegiance. One day, unexpectedly, Paul says, Jesus will suddenly show up and overthrow every kingdom of this world. And then the only peace and safety available will be that which is experienced by those whose trust and allegiance is in Jesus the Lord alone. And for others, there will only be sudden and unexpected destruction. Paul's reminding us of what I have to remind my child of when that child gets a splinter in their foot. And that is that we've got to take a long-term view on things and endure a little pain now if that's what it takes to enjoy long-term peace and safety. Well, Paul is confident that the Thessalonians have made the right choice here. They're hanging in there with Jesus. They're, they're standing for him, even though they're being persecuted for their faith. And so Paul goes on encouraging them in verse 3. He says, but you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light and sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Paul now is saying that there are two kinds of people. There are day people and there are night people. Night people are asleep. That's why when the thief comes, he takes them by surprise. But day people are are awake. And that's who we are, Paul says, we, we who follow Jesus. 
We're awake. And being awake doesn't mean that we can anticipate when Jesus will return so as to be ready because we know the day and the hour. No, it means rather we don't know when he comes, but we're always ready. We're always ready. Paul continues, verse 6. Let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. So what does it mean to be ready for Christ's return? It means we're not spiritually asleep or drunk like night people are. Rather, it means that as day people, we are spiritually alert and and self-controlled. Self-controlled. Paul's referring back here to the first part of chapter 4, which Greg looked at with you last week. In in verse 4 of chapter 4, Paul had exhorted them about self-control on sexual matters. He said, each of you should learn to control your own body in a way which is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the heathen who do not know God. He's saying night people, drunk people, have no control. They do whatever feels good at the moment. But day people are alert and sober. They control themselves to do what, what pleases God. In verse 8, Paul adds three other qualities of day people. Faith, hope, and love. These are three of Paul's favorite Christian qualities. He introduced them all the way back in, in chapter 1, verse 3, if you can remember back that far. Faith. Day people entrust their lives to Jesus, come what may. They have faith. Love. Day people are growing in in selfless, sacrificing love for others. They have love and hope. Day people endure pain now if that's what it takes to be faithful because they've got their sights set on the long term. When Christ returns... as he gathers his own to himself and and as he punishes his enemies and as he makes all things right and all things new, they have hope. They look forward to that day. They live in light of that future reality. They have hope. So Paul says, when you have this this perspective, verse 8, you are alert like a soldier suited up for battle. He uses uh, armor imagery, much like he does in Ephesians 6. And so even though day people have no idea when Jesus will return, when Jesus does, they will be ready because they are always ready. A few weeks ago when our family was at Harvey Cedars Bible Conference, the guy doing the devotions did a little skit with his granddaughter. And he told her that he was going away. And while he was away, he wanted to make sure she stayed away from the cookies. And he left. And she did a good job of resisting temptation for a while. But, but finally she was overcome by those cookies. And just at that moment, he came home suddenly and he found her with her hand in the cookie jar. She wasn't awake and alert for his coming. She had gotten sleepy. She had gotten drunk, so to speak. And so she was unprepared when he came. Now, the point isn't here that we hope Jesus catches us on a good day. (laughs) Thankfully. The point is, where is our life headed? What direction is it headed? What has been the pattern over weeks and months? And when he comes, what space, what path will he find us on? 
This could all be scary, and it should be scary for those who aren't prepared. But Paul isn't trying to scare the Thessalonians. He's trying to encourage them because they are day people. And so in verse 9, he says, For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath as night people will suffer, as those persecuting the Thessalonians will suffer, but rather to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation, that's what the Thessalonians have to look forward to when Christ returns to rescue them. That's why they can hang in there during the persecution. And so in verse 10, Paul wraps it all up on a positive note. He says, Christ died for us so that whether we are awake, alive when Christ returns, or asleep in death when Christ returns, we may live together with him. There it is again, together with the Lord Jesus. That's our hope. And that's our goal. So Paul concludes, encourage one another and build one another up. Just in fact, you're doing. Several years ago, there was a Johnny Depp movie called Secret Window. It's about a writer uh, played by Depp who at some point in the movie, uh, or at one point in the movie, makes the comment about being a writer. He says, the only thing that matters is the ending. It's the most important part of the story. He has a point. It's the ending that brings everything into perspective. Thank you, Paul, for being the instrument of the Holy Spirit to fill us in on the ending. And as we live our lives now, may we live in light of that ending. And may we take Paul's advice and may we encourage one another and may we build one another up with these words. Amen.